Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. You must remember just a Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Polly Platt's life and career had been upended by her husband Peter Bogdanovich's affair on the set of The Last Picture Show. According to Frank Marshall, one of the reasons Polly agreed to continue working with Peter was that she was hoping his affair with Sybil Shepard would not last. I think she thought that, you know, this is Peter fulfilling his fantasy of being, you know, of an old Hollywood director and falling in love with his leading lady. And then it would, you know, it would end. And I think that, you know, going back on what's a stock and, you know, I think she was kind of hanging around thinking that was going to happen. And then it didn't. And it kind of all blew up on Paper Moon. Paper Moon, the fourth film Polly and Peter made together, filmed about two years after Bogdanovich had first fallen in love with Shepard. In that time, Polly had learned a lot about the inevitability, the consequences, and the artistry of onset affairs. As she wrote, There's a kind of hierarchy in the world of movie making. First of all, if you're in the below-the-line team, that is everyone below the cameraman, which includes the crew, the drivers, the location manager, and such, you really should sleep up with someone who gets paid more than you and has more influence, artistically or power-wise. The above-the-line are the stars, the actors, the writers, the director, and the producers. 
The only acceptable affair for me as a production designer would be to have an affair with the cinematographer. The least acceptable affair would be to sleep with one of the grips or electricians. On the set of Paper Moon, while her ex-husband's mistress-turned-muse was hidden away in a motel room practicing her tap dancing for the musical Bogdanovich would soon direct her in, Polly would have her own affair. And in the context of the hierarchy of affairs, it was considered an unacceptable one. This relationship and Peter's reaction to it and the scandal it caused on the set of Paper Moon rendered Polly and Peter's working relationship untenable. And so, Polly would be set on the path of forging her own career in movies, independent of Peter, navigating a Hollywood which was being remade by a generation of men as a talented but extremely opinionated woman, while also raising two small daughters. Over the next five years, Polly would not only work on classic films such as Nashville, Bad News Bears, and A Star is Born, she'd also reinvent herself as a writer and a producer. But these career achievements came with much struggle as Polly sought to balance her ambition with her powerful desire to be a good mother. Feeling like a divided woman, Polly increasingly turned to alcohol to fill the gulf between her two selves. Join us, won't you, for part five of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. As Paper Moon's production designer, it had been Polly's job to hire the prop department. Her friend, Ellen Burstyn, recommended two prop guys she had just worked with on Bob Rafelson's The King of Marvin Gardens, brothers named Mark and Tony Wade. The older brother, Tony, immediately caught Polly's eye. It is the custom when you are in pre-production to visit all the locations with the cameramen and the rest of the crew so that they know what to expect and plan accordingly for each day's shoot. We went in vans. I sat behind Tony on a few occasions and found myself fascinated by his wide shoulders and the shape of his head, which was covered with short curly hair. He was very dignified and professional, which only made me like him more. I wondered if he was married. Tony Wade was, in fact, married. And like Polly, he had two kids at home in Los Angeles. That wasn't necessarily an impediment. Remember that this was the 70s. Everyone was having affairs. Peter was having affairs. Ryan O'Neill, too. So many people in movies, making them on locations, have affairs. It's because the hours are long and the evening's so empty. Nothing to do except go back to the seedy motel and sit in your room until it's time to go to bed. It's just terribly lonely, and you're isolated from your family completely. Some become heavy drinkers every evening after work, which is what I did. I had become a heavy drinker, an alcoholic drinker, lots of vodka. I would see Tony and his brother at night in the bar, where we all went to drink after the day's work was done. It was my chance to flirt with him, and I did so with unaccustomed relish. 
I decided to prove to him that I could drink like he did, and I would match him vodka for vodka. He was, however, a big man, and I was what you would definitely call petite, only 110 pounds and five foot two, so that was too much liquor for me. Tony made me laugh a lot. He had this terrible, funny, dry, wicked dark humor, and he would flirt with me during the day's shoot. He would eat his meals in the caterer's truck and stand in the doorway watching me get my tray, and he would mouth the words, I love you, to me as I passed by. I flirted with Tony until he really couldn't resist, I guess. I had felt like an unattractive, non-sexual woman ever since losing Peter to Sybil. Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned is true, or it was for me. I was furious, even though I was still working with Peter. My affair with Tony was revelatory. It was fantastic, exotic, romantic, sexy, and beautiful all at the same time. I emerged from my motel room every morning at 6 a.m. charged with new energy and confidence. I was attractive. I was not an exhausted mother, a possibly sexually inept woman who had lost her husband to a cover girl. Our lovemaking was unique to me and fierce. Tony and I ate and drank and made love every night. Oh, those nights were fabulous. Tony and I kept our relationship a secret. It was unprofessional for me to have an affair with the property master. But that sharp-eyed little eight-year-old Tatum O'Neill had a terrific sense for everything romantic. She quickly spotted the affair and told Ryan about it. And Ryan, of course, told Peter. Frank Marshall had a different memory of how Peter and the rest of the Paper Moon crew found out about this affair. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, here we go. Polly was, you know, pretty still angry, jealous, pissed off, whatever you want to call it, at Peter. Sybil was coming for a couple of weeks, and we had to, it was kind of a pain in the ass to arrange two sets of dailies because uh, Polly wouldn't didn't want Sybil to be in the room when we were watching dailies with the crew. And so we'd have to have a separate screening of dailies later that evening. And back in those days, you know, you had a projectionist and you had, it was a real hassle to, to run dailies once, much less twice. So, I, you know, I was kind of thought, well, you know, she's being overly dramatic. And so one afternoon, on a Sunday, I went to check the location we were going to shoot at the next day. And I drove around the corner to this location, and there were Polly and Tony Wade in one of our station wagons. We, all, we had about 10 of these station wagons that all looked alike. And so there was no mistaking who it was. And I sort of stumbled in them into, you know, I discovered them having their affair. And I got really mad at Polly because I felt she was so hypocritical <laughs> at the time. She had even kept it from me. I had no idea about this. So so then now, so I had this incredibly conflicting moment of, do I tell Peter? Do I, who am I loyal to? This is a mess. So it, it kind of, that was the moment where everything exploded. She was just, you know, 
as I say, she was causing problems because of Sybil, but on the other hand, she was having an affair with somebody, you know, on the crew. That that was, in my recollection, what everybody thought was not right. Polly thought Peter was the hypocrite. I remember the early morning of shooting when Peter arrived in his limousine late as usual. We were all out there waiting for him, freezing to death. He would normally crack the window of his warm limousine and call me over to get in with him to talk over the day's shooting. But this day, he point-blank asked me if I was having an affair with Tony Wade, and I answered truthfully. I wasn't ashamed. I felt my work was so good that it didn't matter about the affair with Tony. What stunned me was how angry Peter was about it. Apparently, he was allowed to have his affair, but I was not. I decided then and there that I would not work with Peter again. He had a double standard, and his notions as to how I was to remain faithful to him while he did what he wanted were ridiculous. I began to understand Peter's infatuation with Sybil. Tony Wade transfixed me. It was temporary, I knew that, as Tony was married with two children. I felt guilty having an affair with a married man. I was doing the same thing to Tony's wife that Sybil had done to me. I certainly knew how painful it was for the wife, but I did it anyway, thinking that she would never know. I consoled myself by thinking that it was only for the duration of the picture. I said goodbye to Tony at the end of the shooting. It was hard, but I wasn't going to be the person who wrecked a marriage. Peter seemed to get over his anger about my affair, but I had definitely decided for the last time that it was all over between Peter and me, especially where work was concerned. I was never to become romantically interested in a movie director again. They were all the same once you got to know them. Driven, narcissistic, and autocratic. Now that Polly had been inducted into the Art Directors Guild and had three films under her belt which she knew were good, and which in time would come to be considered as some of the best of the decade, Polly believed that she didn't need to work for Peter anymore in order to work. But she wasn't prepared for what Hollywood in the 1970s could be like for a woman who didn't have the protection of being part of a creative team with a powerful man. She found out soon enough. Polly ended 1972 by taking a vacation with Larry McMurtry. McMurtry was raising his son, James, as a single dad. So he and Polly planned a trip to take all three of their kids to Antigua for Christmas. But first, Polly had a job interview in New York. Robert Altman was looking for a production designer with experience recreating the 1930s, for his upcoming Depression-era film, Thieves Like Us. McMurtry babysat Sashi and Antonia at the Sherry Netherland Hotel, while Polly went to meet Altman. We went out to dinner at a trendy restaurant with his attractive red-haired wife and a bunch of other people I didn't know. Altman gave me his full attention. I told him that I was not inclined to do another 30s picture, I had fallen in love with the period for Paper Moon and felt that I wouldn't do justice to a second film of that era. He used all his powers of persuasion. He had booked my room right next to his in the Sherry Netherlands. Late that night, Altman's wife flew back to Los Angeles and he 
brazenly opened the doors between our suites and walked into mine. My children were asleep in one of the bedrooms. He told me that he wanted to sleep with me. You are the first woman who has taken my mind off the woman I really love. I didn't even wonder who that might be. What a sad seduction technique. Later, he continued to bargain with me, telling me confidently that he slept with all the women he worked with. He mentioned a few names to whet my interest, making me glad that I would not be added to this list of names. I laughed at him and went to Antigua with Larry McMurtry for Christmas. Antigua is a Caribbean island, east of Puerto Rico. It rained the whole trip, and the mosquitoes were fierce. They particularly liked baby Sashi. It was a bittersweet time for Polly. I loved being with Larry and his very shy young son, James. But I realized how deep a fissure this separation from Peter, the father of my children, was to be. There were to be no more family Christmases. That was over. The children would have to have their vacation time with their father and Sybil, and I would be alone. Peter at least had Sybil with him no matter what. This, I realized, for the long haul, was going to be lonely for me and very hard on my children. The most poetic day was watching a lone Antiguan boy ride his black stallion right into the sea at sunset, driving the horse deep, deep into the Caribbean Sea until the horse was swimming and the boy holding on to his mane. They emerged shiny with the water and happy as two young creatures could be. I looked at Larry, and I think I saw that he loved me. I was in love with Polly. Those are the words of Larry McMurtry, which he sent to me via email, and which are being read on this podcast by the actor Bill Sage. Unfortunately, she had just fallen in love with Big Tony. She spent all her time phoning Big Tony. Tony Wade would eventually become known to all as Big Tony, to differentiate him from Little Tony, Polly's daughter Antonia. But he was also really big. Next to Tiny Polly, Tony Wade looked like Paul Bunyan. After Christmas, Larry and Polly went their separate ways. And on the journey back to Los Angeles, Polly was thrown into the deep end of single motherhood. In order to get back to Los Angeles, Polly and her two daughters, who were then two and five, had to change planes at the Miami airport. They landed in Miami and discovered that a plane crash had thrown the airport into chaos. Tons of flights had been canceled, and the rebooking lines were endless. The trip back, alone with my two small children, was a nightmare. There I was, having to stand in a very long line, carrying Sashi and trying to keep Antonia from running all over the airport. She fell and cut her lip and was crying, so I had to step out of the line that I had been standing in for hours to tend to my daughter's injury. Holding Sashi on my hip, I put cold water on Antonia's mouth from the water fountain. I wondered how I was going to get through all this. None of us had slept for hours, and the children were as tired as I was. Tired children act like little drunken creatures. They get wilder and wilder. I tried to get back in line where I had been, and the man there told me I had left the line and lost my place. He would not let me in. 
It was the first time in my life that I wondered if I could punch out a man. I thought about decking him. He wasn't much taller than me. I could just punch him in the mouth with my fist. I tried it, and the airport police came and got me and put me in a room for questioning as my children ran around some more. Eventually, they realized that I was not dangerous, and I got seats for myself and my children on the next plane out to Los Angeles. I began to realize fully the serious nature of my life alone. What to do? My heart was broken, but I went on. Actually, what else was there for me to do but go on? I had these two girls to tend to, and I wanted to have a career in movies no matter what. I was stoic about what happened. I even made fun of the whole affair, calling it a bad script and all that. Why? I was definitely lost without Peter, the creative partner, the father of my children, and my husband. While Polly was still waiting for her final divorce papers, she had an unexpected visitor at the house on Outpost Drive. Tony Wade pulled up into my driveway with his suitcases in his car. His wife had thrown him out of their house. I was conflicted. I honestly was not prepared to take in a married man, and I wasn't sure how I felt about Tony. It had been all sex when we were together. I wasn't sure I was capable of loving another man. Unfortunately, I was still in love with Peter. But I let him into my house, and our life together started. Larry McMurtry who, as we noted, had fallen in love with Polly right around the time she had fallen for Tony, had nothing positive to say about this new man in Polly's house. Big Tony was a thug, essentially, and not a nice man. She seemed obsessed with getting him the same level of fame as Peter. Whenever I'd stop by their house in the Hollywood Hills to visit Polly, Big Tony appeared threatened by my presence. Interesting, he called Tony a thug. This is Antonia Bogdanovich, who grew up with Tony Wade as her stepdad. Well, I would say that Tony Wade and Peter Bogdanovich couldn't be more different. Tony Wade, he worked his way up to property master, and um, he was a cop. I mean, he was a sheriff on and off in West Hollywood. He was definitely intimidating to me. I mean, he was a bully. I mean, he was strict. And I I feel like I needed it, but some of it was bordering on, you know, scary, abusive. But there was a different time. But he didn't intimidate my mother. She wasn't afraid of anything or anybody. They got in a couple of fights that I witnessed, and I think she got the upper hand. I mean, I walked in on a couple of fights, but he adored her. Nessa Himes, the casting director on What's Up Doc, got to know Tony well. Yes, I love Tony. But I think he was a, he was a rough, rough around the edges, and uh, they, they were I don't think well suited for each other, because Polly is so upper class in a sense, and to, not that I'm against that, but I th- there were frustrations, you know, about working and about getting ahead, and Tony was a rough guy. The difference between a crew member and the the above the line and the below the line, you know? And the above the line is Polly, and the below the line is, is Tony. But she got him a little more, what would we say, um, upscale a little bit, but not, he just was what he was. 
WhatsApp Doc had opened in March 1972 and became a huge hit, outgrossing everything released that year except for The Poseidon Adventure and The Godfather. Finally, Peter was seeing his full name on movie theater marquees. It was, he said later, the peak of my career. It was worth a lot of the shit that followed. Paper Moon came out a year later, and it was also a hit, becoming one of the top 10 grossing films of 1973. But it was even more successful critically, and with the Academy. It earned four Oscar nominations, including one for Tatum O'Neill. When the nominations were announced, Tatum was visiting her dad, who hadn't been nominated, on the London set of Barry Lyndon. Tatum couldn't remember how she found out about her nomination, but later, her friend Vivian Kubrick told her that Ryan O'Neill had been so upset that Tatum had been nominated and he hadn't, that on hearing the news, Ryan had socked his daughter. Tatum had blocked that part out. When Tatum won the award, becoming at age 10 the youngest person ever to win a competitive Oscar, neither of her parents were in attendance. If you go by IMDb, it looks like Polly Platt didn't work at all on films released in 1974 and 1975. In fact, she did begin work on two films during that period— One of them was Nashville. Polly had laughed off Altman's attempt to seduce her during her Thieves Like Us job interview, and she was excited to work on this new movie, which had been written, like Thieves Like Us, by Joan Tewksbury. Polly and Joan scouted locations in Nashville together, while Altman was holed up in his hotel room, fascinated by the Watergate hearings. One day, Altman called Polly and Joan into his office and said he wanted Joan to change the script's ending. Inspired by real-life political tragedy, Altman said, we've got to assassinate the wrong person. Polly thought Altman was wrong. I fought him on it because the original script didn't have the assassination. He added that, and I felt that it ruined the script. Everybody arriving at Nashville and then this assassination, which obviously comes from his political fascination. It's like a sledgehammer. I talked to Joan, and she agreed with me, but she was afraid of him. She had a chance to get her script made, so you can see why she stayed. Polly quit Nashville in protest and returned to L.A. In October 1974, she called the Art Directors Guild and left a message with a secretary declaring her intent to retire as an art director. In a little detail that demonstrates what it was like to try to juggle one's work and home life as a single mom in 1974, the message continues to note that Polly wouldn't be home to receive a call back that night because her daughter had a bluebird meeting. When I first saw this message... I was stunned that Polly would resign from the guild that she had worked so hard to get into by leaving a message with a secretary. But Polly's guild membership was reinstated about six months later. And in fact, the files show she went on and off the guild eligibility list 
in order to avoid paying dues when she wasn't working as a production designer. The job she rejoined the Guild for in April 1975 was The Fortune, a misbegotten project starring Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson and directed by Mike Nichols, about whom Polly had little good to say. We disagreed so vehemently about the sets for the movie, and he was surrounded by yes-men, so I could make no headway with him because everyone in the room would agree with him and not me. He also tried to make us all sign a statement that we would not write or speak to the press about Mr. Nichols. I ignored that nonsense and refused to sign it. At any rate, I was doing my usual stuff, arguing with Nichols about the cuts he was making to the wonderful script written by Carol Eastman, interfering with casting. I wanted him to cast Bette Midler as the big-hearted heiress who loves both Nicholson and Beatty. He cast Stockard Channing, an undeniable talent, but not right, I thought, for this part. We agreed on nothing at all. So the day he called me into his office, I knew the play that was about to unfold. He was standing up, his back to me, looking out the window with his hands clasped behind his back. He turned to me with a baleful expression, and I said, You're going to fire me, aren't you? He nodded his head, and I sat down, comfortable for the first time since I started pre-production. I was happy. Nichols suggested that we simply say that I was covering the production design job until Dick Silbert became available. And I said, that is just doo-doo on top of horseshit. As I cleared out my desk, I waited for the bad feelings to come to torture me. But they never did. Polly had built her career working with Peter, who allowed and seemed to want her to push back on his ideas with better ideas of her own. But she quickly found out, with Robert Altman and Mike Nichols, that this wouldn't work with every director, or even most directors. As Polly put it in an oral history on Altman, They're all alike egotistical and used to having every word listened to. They're spoiled. Nashville is widely considered Robert Altman's masterpiece, but The Fortune would go on to become Mike Nichols's second major flop in a row and his last feature film as a director for eight years, until Silkwood. And getting fired from the movie didn't hurt Polly she almost immediately got a call from director Frank Pearson, who had been hired to direct a remake of A Star is Born. A Star is Born had been made twice already, first in 1936 as a scathing takedown of Hollywood by Hollywood, and then as a heartbreaking meta-musical starring Judy Garland and James Mason. Now, Pearson had been hired to direct a version set in the rock and roll world, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. We talked about this film and its production from the perspective of Streisand's stardom in episode 21 of You Must Remember This, way back in 2014. But here we'll look at the production from the angle of Polly Platt's work on the film. Polly believed she was called in for a meeting with Pearson because Barbara had put in a good word for her, based on their work together on What's Up Doc. When she first met with Pearson, Polly recalled, 
We talked about Streisand, and I shared with him my opinion of her, which was that she was not difficult. She was a perfectionist and cared deeply about every detail as I did. But basically, we had similar tastes, and the collaboration was great, at least on What's Up Doc. If I did disagree with her, it was very, very difficult to make her change her mind. I told Frank that it required direct honesty and very good logic to have any effect. If anything, I adored her. I was fully aware that if she had been a man, her attention to detail and her obsessive perfectionism would have been called genius. Since she was a woman and a powerful star, these qualities elicited critical words like difficult and temperamental. I reassured Frank that he would enjoy the work with her. Since What's Up Doc, Barbara had continued to accumulate power in Hollywood as the star and driving force behind two major hits, The Way We Were and Funny Lady. And now she had a new boyfriend, her former hairdresser, John Peters, who would be credited as A Star Is Born's producer. This would be his first film in that role, and it had been a difficult transition for him. The day he said goodbye to the staffers at his hair salon, Peters wept. Polly sensed from the beginning that there could be a power struggle between director Pearson and Streisand. Pearson, who was a successful screenwriter, who would soon win an Oscar for writing Dog Day Afternoon but was making his feature directorial debut on this movie did not have enough experience as a director to know how to deal with a novice producer. According to numerous accounts, both Peters and Streisand had each wanted to direct the movie themselves, which led to an impasse. Neither felt that they could take sole director's credit without hurting their partner. According to Polly, during pre-production, before they started shooting... Streisand attempted to lure Polly into a solution, suggesting that Barbara and Polly team up to direct the film together. In her memoir, Polly wrote, I thought it was the worst idea I had ever heard and told her so. I wanted to talk to Barbara Streisand for this podcast, but she declined to participate in a recorded interview. Over email, She denied that she had asked Polly to co-direct the movie with her. Polly's memoir is not the first place this story has appeared. It's also in the book, Is That a Gun in Your Pocket?, published in 1999 by Rachel Abramowitz. In that book, Polly claims she told Streisand, Two women can't direct a movie. It's ridiculous. I'm sure that happened. I'm sure that happened. This is Rachel Abramowitz. I am sure that it was a blip in Barbara's day. I mean, you know, Barbara should have directed the movie. But I think Polly probably did remember it because it was important to Polly in a way that it would not be important to Barbara. The fact that Polly told this story repeatedly is interesting because it suggests that she really believed in the mid-1970s that two women directing a movie together would have been impossible. And that decades later, she wanted people to know how impossible it had once seemed. One wonders, in a hypothetical world in which Polly and Barbara had co-directed A Star is Born, 
if both women would have had very different careers going forward, or even changed the state of gender imbalance in cinema. Streisand wasn't credited as a director until Yentl in 1983. If she had directed a film on the scale of A Star is Born, which was reported to have a budget of $6 million in the 1970s, she would have rocketed to the top of the ranks of female directors in Hollywood, as no other woman had yet been allowed to helm a movie with that large of a budget. As for Polly, as we'll see in later episodes, she would later claim that it was difficult for her to imagine directing without a strong producing partner backing her up. Barbara Streisand would have been nothing if not strong backup. Polly was used to controlling all visual aspects of a film, including the costumes. But on A Star is Born, Streisand brought in clothes from home for her character to wear. Streisand wrote to me that she was responsible for the credit that appears at the end of the film, stipulating that Ms. Streisand's clothes are from her own closet. Polly wrote that Polly asked for the credit so that no one would think it was her decision to dress the character of a nobody-turned-superstar in things like hot pants and diamonds. For his part, director Frank Pearson later defended Barbara's costume choices in an oral history, saying, She and I were very much on the same page as far as that's concerned. The extravagance of this was important. This was a character who goes from just doing virtually a Las Vegas lounge act and suddenly she's got all this wealth. This is not just Jane Fonda rejecting the artifacts of power and fame and so on. Though Polly didn't love all of Barbara's choices, the women had a mutual appreciation for one another, and they listened to each other's ideas. Polly felt that when Barbara was right, she was really right, and this became especially important when a flirtation popped up that threatened to derail multiple aspects of Polly's life. Barbara and John Peters gave a party for Chris Christopherson and some of us from the movie. Christopherson was drinking, and so was I, as many glasses of wine as I could swallow. Chris was looking at me a lot, and I could see that he was attracted to me, but he was drunk. He asked for my phone number, and I foolishly and drunkenly gave it to him, wondering what I would do if he called me. I was living with Big Tony in my lovely house on Outpost Drive, and there was no room for any romance with Chris. Barbara, who never misses a beat, was onto the situation right away, and she pointed her beautiful, long, fingernailed index finger at me and said, You are not to sleep with Chris. It made me laugh the way she never missed a thing going on. When I got home that night and the phone rang, I knew it was Chris. And when I answered it and heard his voice, I simply hung up on him. I had no idea of any other way to handle it. Big Tony was asleep upstairs, and I was terrified he would hear that call, but he didn't. Even with all of these minefields, this was still a good job for Polly, and she had an extraordinary feel for the material. In her memoir, even while dismissing A Star is Born as a, quote, pretty lightweight movie, she demonstrates her understanding of the story on a deeper level and explains how she approached telling that story visually. 
There are themes of success and failure, alcoholism and drug abuse, the decadence of life in the music world, where so much money is made by people who usually don't know what to do with it. They often spend it all on drugs, and in the case of Chris Christopherson's character in the movie, it depresses a failing star and leads to suicidal behavior. The movie's design needs to reflect some of these themes. In order to have a better take on how people in rock and roll live, I went to visit some of them. After researching the lives of several big musicians, I decided that Christopherson's character should always be in the dark. He should live in a huge darkened house with no furniture except a cherry Harley Davidson motorcycle in the living room. Frank loved that. For Barbara's character, I wanted light, a clear, beautiful, rosy light, and I designed the set for her little apartment just that way. The meaning is simple, obvious. She brings clarity and purity into his dark Hades-like existence. This is really a pretty simple description of part of a designer's work. That is why the Tucson desert was such a perfect location for the home that Christofferson goes to with Barbara's character, full of light. I even designed the house like a lean-to, with one door, the front, facing toward the sunset, and the back, where the kitchen is, facing the rising sun. I filled that house with fine Navajo blankets, Hopi dolls, photographic prints by Edward Curtis. The walls were all white, and it was beautiful. After the movie opened, I received several requests from people like Sonny and Cher, who wanted my plan and drawing so they could build a house for themselves like the one in the movie. In some sense, Polly was turning A Star is Born into autobiography. The movie's doomed couple built their dream house in the Arizona desert because Polly had pulled her usual trick, making the case to the director and producer that the setting in the script didn't make sense and that she had a better idea. Here's how she described it in a seminar at AFI. The end of A Star is Born was set next to the ocean. They had a house on the ocean, just like the original movies. And I said, oh, God, you just can't do this. And I know Arizona very well. I lived down there where that house is. And they let me build that house down there. They had confidence. When Polly lived there, in the Arizona desert where they built the house for the movie, she was married to Philip. It was while living in that area that Polly became interested in American Indian culture and began collecting things like turquoise and Navajo blankets, like the one she had brought on to this location. In the movie, Barbara Streisand's husband would die by crashing his Ferrari. Polly chose to set this part of the film in virtually the same location where her own first husband had died in a sports car crash, leaving her all alone with her Navajo blankets and turquoise jewelry. Polly had kind things to say about John Peters as a producer. According to her, he backed her up when she needed things for the design of the movie, including agreeing to hire Jules Fisher, who was then designing tours for real rock stars like the Rolling Stones, to create the lighting for a big concert scene in the movie. But the glimpses she got of Peters' relationship with Streisand made her question their relationship. In her memoir, 
Polly tells a story about having lunch one day in Barbara's trailer. Polly writes that Barbara offered Polly a steak that had been ordered for John, who had decided he didn't want to eat it. They settled down to eat, with Barbara still in hair, makeup, and costume, as there was more to shoot after lunch. Suddenly, Peters walked in, observed the meal in progress, and asked Barbara if Polly was eating his steak. According to Polly, Barbara protested, You told me you didn't want it. Polly says Peters then angrily threw a glass of water at Streisand, which landed in the pasta she was eating, splattering tomato sauce all over the actress's blouse and hair. I was horrified. The producer of the movie ruining the star's costume and hair before the afternoon's shooting, not to mention the violence of the act, which was extremely disrespectful of both Barbara and myself. I stood there, thunderstruck, looking at Barbara, who immediately began to clean up the table. She said softly, John, why did you do that? He stormed out as we continued to clean up the mess, Barbara intent on the cleaning up of the red sauce, not looking at me at all. There was nothing to say except, why do you let him treat you that way? I got no answer. Streisand wrote to me that she didn't remember this fight. A version of the same story appears in Hit and Run, a book about Peters and his producing partner, Peter Goober, written by Kim Masters and Nancy Griffin. Nancy Griffin stands by the story's accuracy, noting that it matched the reputation John Peters had with women. It was in character with John's behavior. He was, you know, violent and abusive with lots of women. Women generally were afraid of of John's temper. You hear the same kinds of uh, doubts expressed a lot. Like, why would a woman take that from a man? Well, you know, fear. (laughs) It all makes complete sense to me. Of course, as a production designer, Polly was concerned about Barbara's clothes and hair. But also, as a woman who wanted to be a filmmaker, who wanted to have more creative power than most women had in the film industry in the 1970s, Polly was shocked to see the dynamic between Streisand, possibly the most powerful woman in Hollywood, and her boyfriend, who was then considered a nobody by the industry, but who had a lot of power over his girlfriend. According to director Frank Pearson... After one John Peters fight, Streisand appeared, quote, physically frightened. Polly was also in a unique relationship on the set of A Star is Born. Though credited solely as a production designer, Polly found herself providing moral support for beleaguered director Frank Pearson. In that way, she performed the same kind of uncredited labor that she had performed on the Bogdanovich films. The kind of labor that often falls to wives who work with their husbands. The major difference, of course, was that Polly was not married to Frank Pearson. They would date years later, but during the shooting of A Star is Born, he was married to another woman. It was still uncommon in 1976 for a woman who was not married to a director to work with him so closely on a mainstream Hollywood film in a capacity other than actress. 
and Pearson found the services Polly provided to him, in a professional context, to be personally irresistible. Frank, like every director I had worked with up until then, also had some kind of sexual attraction to me. I feel ridiculous bringing it up again, but it is the truth. Even though Frank was married, he wanted to have an affair with me while shooting this nightmare movie. I think, and thought then, that it is because I am so very loyal to the director and also very helpful. Frank had no one really to back him up, so I think he was desperate for moral and sexual support. I was not interested. I had had my movie director. It's sufficient to say for now that Frank was the perfect gentleman and never took my refusal out on me while we were working together. The way Polly phrases this, to describe events that took place over 40 years ago, sounds remarkable in the context of today. She was pleasantly surprised that Pearson, her boss, didn't punish her for not sleeping with him. This was how commonplace sexual harassment in Hollywood workplaces was in the 70s. But Polly wouldn't have called it sexual harassment, and she wouldn't have called it out either. Some women at that time, Polly included, felt that because they wanted to be considered equal to men in terms of their talent, they didn't want to draw attention to anything that would make them seem different from the men they were competing with. As Nessa Himes explains. If you called it out, uh, A, nobody would take you seriously. Or they'd say you were like, I mean, the perfect example was when you were looking for a job, you were at your most vulnerable. The guy chased me around the Plaza Hotel with his thing hanging out, promising that I would have a casting job. Did I tell anybody? No. Pushing through all of this required a certain amount of denial which Polly put on display, speaking to gender issues at an AFI seminar in the late 70s. I don't think I have to work harder than anybody else to make it, a man or a woman. I consider myself an artist first, sex is second. I'm not anti-feminist or pro-feminist or anti-male. But in that same seminar, Polly noted that because of what the men she worked with expected from a woman— her personality was considered unusual and sometimes unattractive. I don't always come off too well. You can become very unpopular. You really can. And I have a reputation for being a very unpleasant person, a ballsy chick and all that. But I think that it's worth it. Then the people who really want you around will want you around and will learn to appreciate you. I'm too outspoken and too talkative And I may be overprotective of the need to be able to speak your mind because this is a town that's frightening. I have been frightened. I have been told that I would never work again because I talk too much and I say too much and I give my opinion too much. I think if you are not allowed to, then what is real within you will be destroyed. I don't think I would have gotten anywhere if I had been a yes girl. A Star is Born wrapped, and Polly went home to Los Angeles, where she was asked to read a script about a Little League team. It would shoot locally, allowing Polly to stay home and spend some time with her girls. So she jumped at the chance to design Bad News Bears, 
even if it meant working with a male crew that believed a woman couldn't possibly know enough about baseball to design a movie about it. I looked at many Little League diamonds in Los Angeles, and they were all of them on property next to a freeway, bad for sound. So I found a big park in Encino and designed the diamond myself. The men were grousing that a woman knew nothing about baseball and why was a woman designing this movie? As Polly added during an AFI seminar, That was when I got the most trouble being a woman because they said, why did you hire a woman to design a baseball field? There's nothing easier in the world. You just go get the Little League Baseball Guide. There's a little book that tells you exactly how to do it. And because Polly was designing her diamond from scratch... She was able to position it so that the sun would rise up over first base and set behind second base, creating a shadowless field that would make the cinematographer's job easier. Again, Polly overstepped the usual boundaries of a production designer by suggesting that Tatum O'Neill be cast as the team's girl ringer and calling Tatum's father and making the casting happen. Polly had great memories of being on this set, which was the first one post-Peter to which she was able to bring her kids. For once on Bad News Bears, her home lives and work lives were able to mingle. But for the most part, those lives had to be separate. And this was one of the great lingering wounds of her divorce. My problem, what I felt I drank over, was my continuing sense that I was failing my children, leaving them to go and work for months at a time making movies. People were constantly asking me why I didn't direct. Very few of them, mostly men, were unable to understand my reluctance, which was mainly due to the fact that I would see even less of my children than ever if I were to direct a movie. In despair, and I do mean despair, I drank more and more, torn between my desire to make movies and my responsibilities at home. I loved my children beyond reason, really. I wrote letters to my brother telling him that I was a failure as a mother. Antonia was always angry with me for leaving. I decided to take up my original profession of writing. Movies have to be written by someone, and I had done that with Peter. So why not go ahead and try that again? Thus begins Polly Platt's next chapter. First as a screenwriter, then as a producer, who helps writer-directors clarify their vision. We will join her in that new phase of life next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Frank Marshall, Antonia Bogdanovich, Nessa Himes, Rachel Abramowitz, and Nancy Griffin. 
Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tomika Weatherspoon and edited by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher. <laughs>